Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about The Souvenir. Uh, yes. British drama written and directed by Joanna Hogg. Yes. Um, who's made a number of films before, none of which I've seen. Um, I don't think I've seen any either. I understand they have a reputation uh, for being about kind of middle class uh, characters, uh-huh. middle class life, but I don't really know, well, I don't know anything about them. She's also worked in TV before that, in the kind of 90s and 2000s. She was working on things like Casualty, EastEnders, uh, London's Burning, I think, things like that. And this film is about, from what I understand, it's kind of semi-autobiographical, talking about, or based on her experiences at film school. That's right. Uh, or so, so I understand. Yeah, uh-huh. so I'm led to understand. Uh-huh. Um, so it's about uh, this girl called Julie, played by uh, Honor Swinton Byrne, uh, who is in you know, early 20s. She's uh, at film school. She wants to make a film about Sunderland, but she's she's very kind of middle class, and like, I'm guessing a Southerner herself. She sounds like a Londoner. She's very upper middle class. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she wants to make this film about Sunderland, and she has all these kind of very earnest ideas about wanting to get out of her bubble yes. um, and wanting to... Uh, kind, of, kind of show you know wanting to film in the shipyard. That's kind of the classic thing. If you go to Sunderland, you film the shipyards. Yes. Um, and this is set in the eighties. So although I, kind of, I think it's kind of interesting in that it it has markers of the eighties. It's an ambiguously eighties set, and people talk about the IRA bombings. People talk about um, uh, the dilapidation up north. But you know you don't hear the word Thatcher said at any point. It's not kind of it's not it doesn't beat you down. I think with the kind of symbols of of. That. But still, all the markers are there. The clothes are very much there. Um, yeah, the music. The music uh, is either of that period or the what would have been retro in that period, like Moonlight Serenade. But I think what's interesting is that there is this focus on class in the film. Um, the, the film is kind of bathed in, in, a, in a focus on that. And um, I think in another film, it would be more stereotypically handled. It would be more handled through things like the minors. And it's not here. It's so you're kind of constantly aware of it. There, there, there's talk of, like I say, Julie wanting to, you know, move out of her bubble, see other things. And there's a there's a character in a in a party she's having at a flat in Knightsbridge right at the start. There's a character from Liverpool who's talking about how she, um, she she's there filming them with a camera, with a film camera, and he's saying something like. Um, well, of course she can. She's she she's comes from money. You know she can like she's she, of course she's at film school. Her parents can pay for that sort of thing. Another and then someone else says, well, you know, if you were high, if you made the money, wouldn't you want your kid to have all the opportunities and such and such? And the guy says something along the lines of, yeah, yeah, but I want them to be aware of it, which is which struck me as a kind of um, modern day sort of sort of thing to say in that conversation about privilege. Mm. He uses the word privilege as well at one point, which strikes me as quite a modern day thing. Um, which is not to say that those conversations weren't happening. You know, back in the 80s, people were very aware of it. Mm. But it just struck me as a kind of slightly modern uh, take on it. I don't know. I think the whole class thing is a very interesting take because basically it just feels like it's autobiographical. That's all. So all of the anxieties that British people have, you know, the envy, the nastiness you know, the hidden resentments around kind of class positions really are all absent in this film. I mean, you know, she is unapologetically 
upper middle class. She's a nice person. You know, she wants to do good, you know, but basically this is her family and this is what she comes from. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. that's it. You know, she's in a wonderful, like, 18th century golden bed, you know, and at the same time, it's quite bohemian. She's, she's a person from that background who wants to be an artist, you know, and who's kind of very, gent very gentle and, and thoughtful, you know, and kind, really. I mean, these are all kind of difficult things to make movie about, to make a movie about, because, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a really lovely, nice person trying to do the right thing who is at the heart of the film. And so her struggle really isn't with her background. There's no angst about that. That is just what it is, mm. right? And she's very generous with it, in fact, right? Like, you know, because one, one of the themes of the film or one of the narrative trajectories is that she meets this guy who's in the foreign office, you know, and they begin an affair. And then little by little, she discovers that basically he's a heroin addict, right? Um, so, and it takes her quite a while to discover because you get the sense that she's been so sheltered. <laughs> yeah. She has no idea. So she sees, she sees track marks on his arm mm. and says, what's that? And he says, oh, I don't know. Well, what, do you, what do you think we should do about it? Wait till it goes away. And she, she doesn't know what it is. And then a little bit later... Uh, when they have a couple of friends over for dinner, the the guy's played by Richard uh, Aoadi, who's great, mm. and he says, um, when when the boyfriend uh, Anthony, this is played by Tom Burke, when he leaves the room, um, uh, Richard Aoadi's character says, "So I'm trying to work out how you two fit together. You've got the, the habitual heroin user and the um, apprentice Rotarian." Yes, <laughs> or a, a, a trainee Rotarian. That's yeah. the line. Yeah. She's a great line, but she just she and it, she doesn't she doesn't get that he's been using heroin, and no. obviously it must sink in after that. But yes. but uh, she she's very very confused by it, so she is super sheltered. Mm. And I suppose it makes sense that there's no confrontation about it. No, there's a. I mean, it's not that there's no confrontation. It's just you know she's in love, and she wants to help. And she's completely bewildered by the whole thing. So, you know, I mean, a lot of the time she thinks it's like her fault or, you know, she wants to put him at ease or I suppose all of the things that people who've lived with drug addicts will recognize. Right. And then at a certain point, you know, she's he steals all her valuables, uh, which include not only the jewelry she's obviously inherited and that has sentimental value to her but also her film equipment, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of leaving her without the means to kind of, you know, realize her project. Uh, and even then, she, she she apologizes for making him feel bad about it, yeah. you know. So. She, she set it right at the start as someone very passive in that respect because the idea is that she owns this flat or, you know, it must be her, her, her parents have given her this flat in Knightbridge, Knightsbridge um, and she lives with uh, a roommate uh, and his girlfriend is kind of always there, and there's this conversation that happens between some some other character about how, you know, she's a crap landlady because she needs to start charging her rent, yeah. and she doesn't, and she won't stand up to, to. So like right at the start, you've got this sort of passivity in her. Yes. Um, which thing? Well, yes. Or is it passivity? I mean, the thing is that this is where money comes in. So she's a kind person, really, and she can get money. And that's just kind of not a concern for her. So the idea of making everybody uncomfortable to get something that she might not need or want, you know, the, yeah, you get the feeling that there's a different way of thinking about those things for her that is very much tied, you know, to her class background and, 
you know, and so on. But that is not problematized. You know, that it's kind of, it's given as a marker of character rather than as some kind of a critique of the class system or something. I really loved it. Um, Overall, you loved it. I loved the film. I thought it was, it was, it was very poetic and beautiful. Um, you know, I was trying to figure it out. I, I, I'm not sure about this, but it feels to me, and we should look it up. But it feels to me that it's a film that was filmed with celluloid. There was a quality to the images, right? And kind of, and the images were very carefully filmed. There was like kind of, you know, this double exposure on some of the shots, right? Some of the night shots kind of, you know, the neon and the greens were really brought out and the rest were kind of like really blurry in a way that I thought was like kind of beautifully deployed to indicate a state of mind. You know, there were all those wonderful framed shots of the window where you only saw half of the treetops, right? So there's like the sky, but like the earth is incomplete. There's an incomplete view of, you know, what's around you. I thought, you know, those were all like kind of, you know, some the choices of someone who expresses themselves visually. Um, I'm uh, having a quick look to see if I can find filming details. There's certainly a couple of shots I think you referred to where um, whatever is the normal uh, filming technology has been uh, swapped out for like 8mm, hmm. which to, to, to reflect um, the way that Julie actually films and mm. kind of as you say it's like her state of mind and her point of view mm. almost I mean I found those shots there's only five or six of them but I found those quite self-conscious I love them um, um, I'm just seeing if I can find more information the whole film felt like it was filmed on cellulite uh, yeah 16mm negative camera Ari, Ari 416 and Ari Alexa they're digital cameras aren't they I don't know maybe it's just the 16mm actually refers to those shots I, I meant um, Ari Alexa yeah, the Alexa's digital. Uh, Ari 416 is a film camera. Okay. So there's a combination of both. Right. Uh, and, the, and the negative format, it says there is 16mm. So there you go. Yes. Um, uh, I, so I think the film a- has a particular visual quality. It lacks that brutish sharpness, you know, that you get uh, often in digital. Mm. Some of the images have a grainy quality, and I think, you know, those must be the ones you're speaking of as maybe Super 8 or something. 16mm, I think, is okay, 16. from what I can tell. Um, but, uh, you know, the rest doesn't quite though, you know, you get a sense every shot has been like really carefully thought through, you know, in kind of in poetic ways. I, I really loved it. There's a really painterly soft quality to the lighting and color in them, mm. which I, and, and there may be, if it is digital, that there may be a grain sort of effect on the top, which, mm. which, which, um, helps to sort of, uh, Soften the image, maybe. Mm. Like as you said, there, there's something. To, for instance, it doesn't look like um, a David Fincher or digital, where everything is incredibly sharp and and all the rest. It it does it evokes that feeling of film beautifully. Yes, it does. Um, um, I we must mention the painting because um, the film is named after a Fragonard painting called Souvenir, uh, which we'll we'll put on the you know we'll link up to. It's a picture of an aristocratic 17th century or early 18th century woman with those, you know, wonderful full skirts. Uh, And there's a dog, a spaniel, nearby. And she's basically 
carving the name of someone one presumes she's carving the initial of like, her lover who said to meet love. her there they talk about this in the film alright oh, they, they look at the painting in the film do you remember yes well he sends a postcard yeah. yeah and then they go to the Wallace collection which is where uh, uh, the painting is and where he will end up spoilers <laughs> committing suicide uh, well if it overdosing, is a overdosing overdosing on heroin on heroin in the toilets of the Wallace collection where I was just a few days ago with my nephew, uh, the film would have meant so much more. <laughs> but anyway, the paintings from seventeen seventy eight. Okay, eighteenth um, century. Yeah, eighteenth, late eighteenth century. And as you say, it's it's uh, this this woman in lovely big pink, a pink frock, uh-huh. uh, carving the uh, initial of her lover yes. into this tree, and as a little dog looks on. So the film has that quality, right? You know, so it's this beautiful young woman. It's obviously a, a very well-to-do, you know, uh, 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 young woman, kind of looking back on a lost love, on a souvenir of a love that's no longer there. The film has those qualities, though. It's set in the 1980s, so it's a bit grittier than the painting. You know? <laughs> but, but but not much more. Yeah, kind of, the, you know, the family's aristocratic Tilda Swinton is wonderful, and whoever plays the father is, you know, so striking. Uh, but 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 Swinton is amazing. I mean, from her very first entrance, like you you just feel everything that she's thinking in her bones, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and the way that she's dressed with those woolen stockings and that tartan skirt and you know the little pullover to for walks in the country. It's really everything is is you know. It's 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 great. Well, you know, whatever choices were made to dress her and her makeup, and you know, and then her own performance are fantastic. They really evoke, you know, a particular type of person. You know, like the old Duchess of Devonshire, somebody like that. Like, you know, kind but supremely at ease in in, in every kind of situation. Really, um, so the film is about the souvenir of that, and it it kind of evokes that. It's kind of. It's both sweet and melancholy and sad and you know and 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 rich, right? It's not, um, yeah. It's kind of. I wouldn't say it's through a rose-tinted lens like the skirt of the Fragonard painting that you've just shown me, but it's It is kind of. Um, I don't know. A, a loving look at a terrible situation. Mm. I mean, if you think of how somebody else might have filmed this, you know, it would have all been darkness and grit and soul searching and yeah. Whereas, kind yeah. of, and actually, that move into darkness in the last shot, uh, the second to last shot of the film, where you see Julie filming her film at film school, which you've seen her uh, doing at certain points throughout. It's set up now. Now the actress who she's filming is in this in this wearing black. And all the light is just on her, and everything around is black, as I guess you'd expect. But then, as as the the scene start, as they start to shoot this scene, the camera through which we're watching this um, moves away from the actress and onto Julie. What's the poem that they recite? I don't know. It's a famous one. I'll see if I look it up in a second. Yeah. Um, but the camera ends up on on Julie's face, and it's a shot. Actually, I think it's one of the publicity shots for the film, and I think it's the shot that makes up the end of the trailer as well, which mm. is such a striking shot in the trailer. Because normally in in a trailer, 
you have the various shots from the film and then it cuts to black basically and the text goes over the black mm. but this in the trailer for this the um the words the souvenir at the end were over this shot of judy's face mm. and it's this i don't know it feels like it's a reference to a painting mm. um it certainly has that it has that composition feeling and lighting mm. and it's julie's face turned towards the camera and and it's striking because partially because she's bathed in black all around at that point mm. and nothing like that in the rest of the film has been mm. it's not been all colour and shiny lights but it's been light no actually one of the things that I loved about the film is you know the lack of sharpness that it was all soft focused and grainier and you know you had like it lended kind of like a haunting quality or a quality of the past or memory to the film yeah, just kind of, you know, the the visuals of it, really. Um, I thought it was really beautiful. I'm seeing if I can find information on the poem here. It's it's the one, I think it's it's Keats or Shelley or somebody like that. Do, you know, do not weep for me or whatever. Uh, oh, here's one, Christina Rossetti. Oh, that might be it. Yes, Give Christina a, Rossetti. Let me just have a quick scooch about on the page to find it. This is a page from a, a website called takeonecinema.net. All I searched for was the souvenir film poem, so... Julie is making her film in a soundstage. An act, this is the shot I was referring to. Mm. An actor sits on a stool to the left of frame reciting Christina Rossetti's poem, When I Am Dead, My Dearest. Lit with golds intruding upon the darkness like in a Caravaggio painting. Yeah, well, is that go. the poem? It may be. Shall I look up When I Am Dead, My Dearest? Yes. I'm doing all the research today. Um, oh, it's only, it's only a short poem. When I am dead, my dearest, sing no sad songs for me. Mm. This is what they read. Mm. Plant thou no roses at my head, nor, the one that, nor shady cypress tree. That's Be right. the green grass above me with showers and dew drops wet, and if thou wilt remember, and if thou wilt forget. I shall not see the shadows, I shall not feel the rain, I shall not hear the nightingale sing on as if in pain, and dreaming through the twilight that doth not rise nor set, haply I may remember, and haply may forget. That's lovely. See, and that kind of that does speak to the film and to what the film's about. So beautifully chosen. Um, mm. Anyway, what interesting choices. I mean, I think the other thing that really struck me was that you could tell that this was a film made by a woman. <laughs> right? It's kind of, there's one nude scene, full frontal, it's of a man, right? And if it's of a man kind of offering what ends up being unsatisfactory. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, the, the, the love object of, you know, the protagonist is kind of, uh, he's got a hair lip, he's not particularly fit, right? But she laughs with him and she feels for him. And of course, you know, he's got kind of this elegant way of making her laugh that is hiding, you know, whatever, whatever problems drove him to heroin and, you know, whatever problems heroin is causing, all kind of, you know, mostly remain under the surface, right? He's got one scene where, you know, he's in the midst of the throes of, yeah, mm. uh, uh, need. Um, but I thought that was very interesting, you know, that the person she's so madly in love with, you know, is, is, I mean, he's attractive, but he's not particularly good-looking. He has the kind of mild facial disfigurement that a woman could never get away with, and a man can. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's true. Yeah, uh, I mean, 
you know, had the roles been reversed and had the film been made by a man, it would have been a really beautiful woman, mm. you know, a kind of a, you know, an extraordinarily beautiful woman that he couldn't help but loving even though she was trouble. Yeah. Right? Like this is That's not what he represents. He's also <laughs> rather a lot older than she is. That's right. And he's in his mid to late thirties and she's in her early twenties. Yes. Which and he has this position at the foreign office. And yeah, can keep right. secrets from her. So there is a. It reminded me to some degree of an education. It has a little bit of that. Um, although I think he was a con man in that. So it's not exactly the same. Yeah. But um, it has a sense of that sort of seduction by a mysterious, powerful. Not powerful, but someone with a with it's a kind of mysterious influence. I mean, the, the whole thing is, he's a dandy, and she falls for that. So he's an upper class dandy who seduces her. You know, with his nonchalance and his wit and his light air of boredom. It's a type. It's a romantic yeah. type. Yeah. You know. Uh, it's a very generous role to have been given, I think. <clears throat> uh, Tom Tom Burke, who plays him, Anthony. I think, you know, because it, it's not the central role in the film. That's um, that's uh, Honest Winton Burns. Yeah, who is but, fantastic. But he gets to, he gets the three or four biggest laughs, for one thing. Yeah. Um, he gets to kind of play. Well, he gets to play a, a character role, you know. Yes. Um, so with he has he, there's there's room for flair and freedom and and, and it's all um, quite understated. It's kind of it's played low key. Mm. You know that role could have been done very flamboyantly and it wasn't. Yeah. So you know it's kind of it's a very very good performance, um, very clever as well. Um, so because you know he's, but throughout the film. He really is the object of her desire. Like, mm. you know, she kind of comes alive when he's around and, you know, clearly makes her happy. And, you know, even all of the trouble, like, that he brings her, it kind of... Um, I wouldn't say that she revels in it. There's a point when she can't take it. But she's trying to find all kinds of ways of accepting it, right? Of, mm. you know, of seeing it as part of him. Until, you know, there's a point in which she just can't. Yeah, there's a, yeah I mean, it, it gets to the point where she comes back to her flat and there's just a junkie there who yes. she doesn't know who actually... Fought, and like, he's kind of polite and stuff, but, like, basically she says, you've got to, you've got to get out of the flat. Yeah. It's dangerous. And yes. and then he's not there either. It's not like he's yeah. upstairs waiting. Oh, yeah. you, what do you do with my friend? Yeah. This just, just his junkie was there. Yes. So, like, it gets to the point... That's around the time that she is saying this has to stop. Yeah. Um, and then she finds needles left out and that's exactly when it is so you know she does reach a breaking point good for her yes so I must say you know I there's there's something about the tone that I just loved you know I I love the representation of the parents there was a shot where he they're told he's died and actually uh, Tilda Swinton was so great Mm. because she says something like it's the worst possible news she just says the worst Oh, she says the worst. But then she leans with her elbow to the ball, you know. And that creates a kind of an effect of, you know... Deflation. Of deflation, even while she's trying to be, you know, matter-of-fact about it, you know. Um, And then there's a shot where they're both... The mother and the daughter are both in bed. And you just see, like, Tilda Swinton's back... And she's the one who can't contain her tears. Yeah, she's she's away from the camera, but she's <clears throat> sobbing, and you can tell. Yeah, which, you know, I thought, you know, what an interesting choice, mm. you know, to have the mother, right? Because, you see, when it's the mother doing it, it's like, it's weeping for lost youth, for, you know, someone who will never go to get old, for, you know, a young man brought down in his prime, you know, weeping for her daughter, and so on. So it makes this thing about it being a souvenir, you know, of a time, yeah 
kind of all the more kind of reverberative. Yes. Reverberational. (laughs) Reverberative. Yeah. Yeah, you can look at the whole film then as the souvenir. Yeah. Like Joanna Hogg has made like the souvenir of her past. Yes. I think what we haven't spoken of as much as I'd like to is just how wonderful um, the protagonist is. Uh, what's her name? Anna Swinton Byrne. Anna Swinton Byrne. She's fantastic. I mean, initially when I saw her, she's got this really androgynous quality, mm. you know, in at the beginning, right? And so I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, this might, you know, be a film or a lesbian relationship or something. But it's very clear, you, you, you very early see that it's not quite like that. So on the one hand, she's got a bit of an androgynous look from some angles, and she's very tall, right? You know, which also then does evoke something aristocratic or patrician, you know, kind of about her. Um, and, you know, from some angles, she's, and particularly in the way that she talks, you know, she's, she's got a very soft, malleable, kind of very tender quality. You know, and the combination of those elements, I thought, was just fantastic. And she's very expressive. So mm-hmm. I, thought she was, I thought she was great. She's often dressed in jeans and trousers. Yes, as well, which I think in nineteen eighties jeans, <laughs> yeah, um, which um, like, accentuates that that kind of androgynous quality that she has, and also the shortness of her hair. Mm. It's kind of kind of down to her below her ears, sort of hair. Mm. Um, and then there's there's a few moments when you know, so particularly the the scene where Anthony has been to Paris, comes back with lingerie for her to wear, mm. you know, and it's kind of and she goes and puts it on, and she. She's confident in it, but it's it's it, there's a different look <laughs> for mm. her. I think there's there's one or two points. I think when the, when they go and see the uh, the painting at the Wallace collection, she's in something more kind of formal and feminine. Well, there's, one one of the things about the film is you know she's upper class, he's upper class. They enjoy upper class trappings. Mm. You know, they go out for dinner in really fancy restaurants where she's got to pick up the bill, right? You know, so there is something there about a kind of an appreciation of elegance and 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 luxury, right? Yeah, and and that a, a kind of um, you know a wit and a yeah all, all of those things that are associated with a particular kind of um, I want to say class, you know, but. It, but it is class as well, right? You know, which I think also is a, a kind of, you know, um, an, a 1980s idea of elegant living, but a scene through things like Noel Coward or whatever, right? Like, mm. you know, there is a kind of a posturing, yeah, um, in the way he is, for example. And, and, and then, you know, she's very at ease with it, right? She's got her brooches. <laughs> and it's a kind of posturing that's a kind of conventionality. I think like there's or, or or she depending on who she's with she kind of adjusts yes herself and her dress yes. and her look to fit into the conventions of either the film school people the upper class yes. people she's in jeans with the film school people you know and the thing is that he sees her in a particular way Right, so he's he has a dress made for her, and it's kind of like a nineteen fifties style couture dress, yeah. 
right? And then there's the scenes where they go to Venice, you know, and my God, you know, that is uh, like something out of Senso, right? She's not only wearing like this huge 18th century dress, but it's got a huge train, right? As she's going up the stairs and so on, right? So, so there is a kind of... The film, it might be nostalgic, but there's a fascination with that upper-class milieu and look and lifestyle, and mm. which he's very at ease with, and which I think he is seen to, on the one hand, create the context for and kind of and shape and and through that I think he gives her confidence in a weird way mm. yeah it's an idea of her that's based on the past right so he goes to Paris and what does he bring her back it's like those old-fashioned what do you call it you know stockings and yeah dirt, well uh, the thing to hold up the stockings garter. Uh, yeah garter belt yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and then he has a dress made for her. You know, it's not a 1980s dress. It's no. like a, a 19, it's an 18th, well. It's a phantom thread dress. It's it's a phantom thread. It's a, like a Dior dress aping the 18th century, right? So, yeah, so, so there is, that is the world that, or he creates for her, yeah? It's like, on the other hand, he's a heroin addict. And he's going through all the back streets of London, you know, trying to get a fix. Mm. Yeah. But those two things are coexisting. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and they're coexisting, you know, in a way for her. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's how he sees her. Right. And then what she takes from that vision of her that he sees. I think it's, I think it's really interesting. Hmm. I said to you in the lift on the way up that uh, I didn't like um, the fact that the film ends with his overdose and death. Yes. Um, to me, that seems like an easy ending. Well, um, I think I, I don't understand you because, <laughs> you know, uh, A, it's, it's inevitable, really, like, you know, considering the depth of his addiction uh, and the little help uh, uh, available. Uh, he winds up in a rehab. He's, you know, he backslides. That's what it is, isn't it? Because he's clean for a little while. I think, I think almost all addicts say, you know, it's just a question of time. I mean, this could be the time that the heroin is the wrong dose, and oh yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, so yeah, I mean, you, you have to think about you have to think about recovery in terms of a kind of constant, constant vigilance. But the you rest also of have to, life you also have to, to think of death as an everyday possibility. Hmm. I mean, you know, has it been cut? Has it not been cut? What kind of a dose are you taking? I mean, it's not as if you're walking around with a little scale, are you? You know, so, I mean, he overdosed in the bathroom. That's a kind of almost a cliche because it happens so often. Mm. So, you know, to me, the film would have cheated in a way had that not been the case. And also, so there's a double thing. He's a heroin addict and the film is called The Souvenir, right? Like, so it's almost like the death is implicit, you know, Mm. in the title, really. So, you know, I suppose you could have made it the end of the affair. So the souvenir would have been of an affair that was over, you know, rather than, you know, the affair being over because the guy died. But to me, I don't, I didn't feel it was a cheat at all. Yeah, a cheat is overdoing it, but I just felt like they made... The, 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 you know, I, I, I suppose the positive way of, of saying it is inevitable, as you do, and the negative way of saying it is predictable. <laughs> 
But did you find this predictable? Yeah. I saw it coming. Oh, yeah. well... I felt it was in the post. I just want to have... Um, go back to this, 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 the painting, because there's something about the painting where there's a letter at the floor, which is from her lover. Mm. Um, and I want to know if, like... Does that, is, that, is it, like, an old letter? And she's, she's carving his initials as a memory? Is it a recent letter? And she hopes to see him? To be honest, I don't know. I haven't studied the painting. I haven't. I've barely looked at it, so I wouldn't be able to tell you about the painting. No. We're here to discuss the film. Know, but but, but the, the, the importance of the painting is right there in the title, you know, and in the film. I was just curious. I want to see if there's anything that, if anything is actually known, or if it's something that's more an interpretative, you know, avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something here. The young girl has just received a letter from her lover, which we see lying on the ground. So delighted with its content and so besotted by her lover, she is carving his initials into the bark of the tree. By her side, sitting on a pedestal, which bears the artist's name, is her pet spaniel, a symbol of fidelity. So, well, this this is a um, this is a post by some guy about the, about the artist, and his interpretation certainly is that it's a a current love that how will it progress but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way no it can be um, you know um, no no it's food for thought anyway um, I like when people in films go and look at paintings I like it you know I like it in in Bruges when they're, and they're talking about hell and purgatory and Tottenham and I like it in uh, you know Ferris Bueller when this just goes closer and closer and closer until it's abstracted I like it in Almodovar he always does it yeah um, you know, he always kind of lends significance, you know, to paintings or other art objects. And sometimes they are commenting on the film, you know, very directly. Uh, and sometimes they are, but more mysteriously. Mm. I, he doesn't necessarily expect the people to know the work, you know, but the work is nevertheless adding a kind of a layer of context or meaning, you know, or color. Um, I think film. fine art in real life can can be. I think it it's, it sometimes seems like, uh, especially older works, are from such a sort of different era that they can seem hard to hard to get a grip on if you're in a gallery looking at them, and you, know, you sometimes just don't really know what you're meant to be making of them. And I like hearing people talk about them, even in a film context when it's you know for another purpose maybe, because you get it, you start to get this idea of how to read. How to read a painting, how to mm. read a sculpture through you know through these characters' eyes. I like that. It's so interesting because you know both the painting and the painting is held at the Wallace Collection, and you know what the Wallace Collection also is is a repository of you know great eighteenth-century um, art, really. Mm. You know, so I mean the house is you know, a collection that was kind of a gift to the nation. And because of the time it was given and because the owner, you know, this was an area of collecting, uh, you know, the furniture, you know, the way the rooms are, everything is like an epitome of like great 18th century living, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's got, um, you know, the best collection of, uh, or there, there are more items personally owned by Marie Antoinette in one room in the Wallace collection than anywhere else in the world. They tell you, right? Oh, right. So it's that kind of thing. It's got, it's got the it's got a full set of the Encyclopédie. 
you know, uh, uh, yeah, the kind of, you know, the 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 Voltaire and Diderot and Montesquieu and you know all those great Enlightenment writers contributed to it, right? So so it's so interesting that this idea of luxury, elegant ease, you know, and so on. Yeah, is also something that kind of that that the the Wallace collection evokes, and that the main male protagonist has a connection to. Yeah, mm. and there's, there's the characters have such an ease moving moving through it in the film. The kind of structure of just fitting in yes. there so comfortably. Yes, you know, like if I ever go into a big sort of old stately house like that, stately home. I've got. I feel like we've got to take my shoes off and apologise for being there. But on the other hand, you know, then you're not having, you're not shaking with withdrawal systems over heroin addiction either. <laughs> so well, interesting. I'm doing well in some places. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. I think we're meandering now. <laughs> yeah, but it's nice to meander. It's a meandering sort of film, I think. Oh. You know. I think it's it 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 has that it has a tone of that it has a tone of they meander through the Wallace collection they meander here there and there they meander into Harrods and have tea and you know it's not it's there's some it has that feeling I think it encourages that it's a very gentle and loving and quite elegant kind of um, look at. Um, what could have been a really horrible subject, i.e., you know, a nice girl having an affair, you know, with a junkie, right? So yeah. to have, uh, you know, uh, uh, expressed that tone with that subject matter is quite something. I also um, came across this thing today that I want to read out because it's about the um, Portuguese concept of saudade, um, What's that? It's often translated as nostalgia. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, it's not r- really nostalgia. It's about um, the love that remains is an idea given here. Okay. Missing, missingness. Yes. Uh, um, so wait a second. Let me find the the right quote. It's spelled for the purposes of anyone listening. S-A-U-D-A-D-E. Okay, so here it is, right? So, um, so, saudade is a lot more complex than the usual translations convey. I think that in English it's often translated as nostalgia. But saudade is the presence of the past in the present. And it's also the desire for the future in the present. It's the reality of the present, which contains both the past and the future, which is something that we've forgotten in the modern world. The present doesn't exist, actually. There's neither past nor future. People live in a false present. Uh, so... Um, is that a quote is from anyone in particular? Or is that just... Yeah, so this is by uh, the filmmaker of How Fernando Pessoa Saves Portugal. Uh, it's something... Eugene Green, right? Uh, so, and then he says, Saudade is a sort of joyous melancholia. I don't know if you're familiar... Uh, with the fado tradition, uh, there's a great singer who sings. Uh, sorry, I don't know. Okay, so Dade is a sort of joyous uh, melancholia. Uh, it's not depressive sadness. It's a sort of sadness that is part of the fullness of living. Mm. 
I think you get a little bit of that in the film. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of, you know, uh, it's melancholic, but it's loving. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of, you know, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's about something loved that is still present. Yeah. And that gives meaning. Right. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, mm. anyway, yeah. kind of, it's a very Latin, uh, uh, feeling <laughs> for a very English <laughs> film. <laughs> we just we just repress that shit down. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, uh, I really loved it, um, and I could imagine myself seeing it again. It's not a film that you come out thinking, "Oh, wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that fantastic?" You know, because it's kind of like a gentle film that kind of builds on you you know but i think it's kind of it's the work of a really great filmmaker who knows how to use kind of cinema expressively and who makes kind of film poetry while doing it really and which kind of leaves you with both a feeling yeah and ideas to work through as you leave the cinema really i quite liked it Okay. <laughs> Everything in moderation. Okay. All things in moderation. I quite liked it. I got a little bored at one or two points, and I think it's... I don't know. I, th- I feel to some degree like I wish it maybe approached things that it didn't, or... I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't, wish, I wouldn't wish it to be a different film than it is, but I just, you know... I quite liked it. It is what it is. and I love it. Yeah, well, you know. You're, you're, you're a slut. <laughs> <laughs> <Small> <laughs> <this one. laughs> All right. Well, I highly encourage you to see it if you get a chance. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies. And we are on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very bye much. Bye-bye. <laughs>